When I first started researching this case, it really fascinated me. As I was learning different facts, I was telling a friend about it, and they described it as the Ocean's Eleven of the 1800s. Now, that got my attention even more. I'll never be able to tell this story in the same way as the Ocean's film franchises, but I'm here to give you the story of George Leslie, a man from the 1800s who was dubbed the King of Bank Robbers. This is going to be the oldest case we've covered so far. Back in 1840, a husband and his wife moved to New York City from England. Just two years later, in 1842, the couple had a son, George Leslie. A few years later, the family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, where they opened up a brewery and began building their wealth. George started college at the University of Cincinnati around the beginning of the Civil War in 1861. George's father paid $300, which would be the equivalent of $10,000 today, to keep George from being drafted in the war. While locally he received some backlash for this, he continued his education and graduated with a degree in architecture. Once he graduated, he started his own architectural firm in Cincinnati, which became pretty successful. When George was 25 years old in 1867, both of his parents died, and I'm not sure what caused their death, whether it was an accident or if they died of natural causes just months apart in the same year, but this is when things really started changing for George. By 1869, George sold the family home and his business. He told his friends that he wanted to make easy money, and he moved to New York City. New York City, after the Civil War, was a bit different. It was overcrowded with extremely high crime rate. Gangs were taking over, doing whatever they wanted, and politicians around every corner were corrupt. You know, just, it's a whole different world back then. <laughs> Anyways, George moved to New York City with a plan. And with the money from selling the house, his business, and the brewery that the family owned, he had enough to live a higher lifestyle when he first moved there. He mostly stayed at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which at the time was one of the most prestigious hotels in NYC. People like Cornelius Vanderbilt, a couple of U.S. presidents, and royal families from around the world would stay there. George, he wore the best suits, he collected rare books, and he went to theater productions, just blending in with the wealthiest and the elite families. He became friends with politicians and other entrepreneurs. Through his new friend group, George was introduced to a woman named Frederica Mattelbaum, or Marm, as what she went by. She was also one of the best fencers in New York. Basically, she would take stolen items, then she would turn around and sell them, which she made millions doing this. George already had his plan, that he wanted to rob banks. At the time, bank robberies were messy ordeals. 
They were holdups where bank robbers would go in with guns demanding the safe to be open or taking whatever cash that they had. Or they would go in and use explosives and blow the vault up. That wasn't the style that George wanted. He wasn't in a hurry for money. He had the time to do things more methodically. And he definitely had the skill set. From all the heist movies that I've seen, rule number one is never trust the new guy. So Marm put George to the test and introduced him to a crew for his first bank robbery. One of the crew was Tom Draper, who also had his own business and con that he was running. He ran a saloon where he would have a female take men from the bar to a hotel room. Then they would be robbed, but that's a whole other story. With his crew assembled, George picked his first bank, the Ocean National Bank in New York City. Now George was putting into practice everything he planned to use. Three months before the robbery, he deposited a large sum of money in the bank and used this as an opportunity to befriend the bank president. With his new friendship to the president, he got another friend a job at the bank. But this new employee was actually part of George's crew. Over three months, George took multiple trips to the bank to withdraw money, where he would map and lay out the entrances, exits, where the vaults were, even down to where the furniture was set up in the bank. He then drew up the blueprints. George took to a small warehouse where he built a replica of the bank layout, down to even purchasing a similar safe. He and the crew would practice nightly, running different scenarios that could occur and they ran through the heist time and time again. George and another crew member, they designed a device that they called Little Joker that would help them crack the safe's code. The way that the Little Joker worked, it was a metal wire on a tiny wheel that went behind the knob of the combination lock. When someone turned the combination knob to the right number and it clicked, it would make an indention in the wire for whatever number they clicked. So they would then just have to figure out the sequence that the numbers went in, which was just done by trial and error. But to do this, they had to set the wire, then come back for it. So technically, they had to break into the bank, not once, but twice. The crew member that worked at the bank was able to get them in at night to set the wire. The following day, it worked like a charm. The tellers had no idea that it was behind the knob, as they turned the dial, they marked every number for George. A few nights later, in June of 1869, George did his first bank robbery. The crew went in, removed the wire, figured out the code, cracked the safe. The other doors to the vault were removed with various tools and drills. When the crew left that night, they walked away with $768,879.00 and 74 cents. Today, that would be the equivalent of $27.5 million, and I'm sure a few extra cents. But what really stunned everyone was that when the bank employees came in the following morning, the vault was completely intact. It was locked, not a single sign of damage. By the time that the robbery hit the news, the New York Herald called it a masterful bank job pulled off 
by one very special bank robber. Here's the other thing with George. He wasn't involved in actually doing the robberies. He planned them out. He did the research, the rehearsals. Then the crew would carry out the actual robbery. From 1869 to 1873, George's crew hit banks along the East Coast, including New York, Massachusetts, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire. George's style of robberies began making their way through criminal rings, and other gangs began hiring him as a bank robbery consultant. Note that definitely get flagged by the FBI on your LinkedIn profile today. But George began charging $20,000, which would be about $500,000 today, to consult with them on bank robberies. In 1870, George stayed in Philadelphia for a little bit at a boarding house. There he met the owner's daughter, Mary Koth, who went by Molly. George was 28 at the time, and Molly was only 15, but they began dating and got married a short time later. They moved back to NYC, and they bought a 10-room house. The carpet was imported. They had a massive library, grand piano, and they paid what today would be the equivalent of $2.5 million for it, which is actually really good for today, considering that $2.5 million would barely get you a one-bedroom apartment in NYC. Molly didn't know exactly what George did to make this money. He told her that he was a detective for the IRS, which maybe her young age can be to blame for not realizing that government jobs like that wouldn't be affording that lifestyle. George and Molly continued living within the high society, hosting and socializing with the elite class of NYC. All the while, no one knew what he was truly doing to make his money. I don't know when or how Molly found out, but eventually she found out what he actually did for money, and she was fine with it. She had become accustomed to that lifestyle. Well, she was fine with it until she also found out that he was spending money on other women, which caused problems in their marriage. It also caused problems within his crew. It was suspected that one of the women he was seeing was the wife to one of his crewmates, Tom Draper. By 1876, George learned of a bank that supposedly had an invincible lock. It wasn't just a code, it was a code and a lock combination. This was George's new target, to break the invincible vault. First of all, I just want to say thank you for listening to this podcast. It really does mean a lot. Looking back to when I started this three years ago, I never would have imagined that it would be downloaded all over the world. I really expected the only people to listen would be my mom and a few friends. It is still a work in progress, and I'm still trying to figure things out as we go and bring these cases to you. If you'd like to hear about a few extra cases each month, please consider joining the Crime Nerds Patreon group. For just $5 a month, you'll get two extra episodes, a copy of my book, and I'll be adding more things to the $5 tier soon. The biggest thing is, 
I just want to thank you for listening. You all continue to surprise and amaze me and all the support for the show. And now, back to this episode. So to crack this invincible safe, George had a different technique that he used. George tracked down the salesman and bribed him for information. The salesman said that the cashier had a copy of the key and the combination. George's crew then kidnapped the cashier, forced him to give them the combination and the spare key. After that, the heist was in motion, and they walked out of the bank with $1.6 million. But here's a bit of an issue. Only 12000 of that was in cash. The rest was in bonds which had to be cashed by the person whose name was on it. While that was still a lot of money, things began going south for George and his crew. Now, I'm not sure exactly what led to the arrest of some of the guys. Maybe that they actually did try and cash some of the bonds, but some were arrested. And this was the first that I found where some of his crew members were arrested after a robbery. Then two years later, during another robbery in Dexter, Maine, the crew he had at the time ended up killing one of the cashiers. With a string of failed robberies, things began going bad between George and the crew. There were issues especially between George and Draper. With each robbery, George took 50% of the earnings. The other 50% was divided up between the crew members. Even though the average salary in NYC at the time was $1,000 a year, and they were making far more than that, they still didn't like it. So here was the plan. George wanted to do one last heist. It would be the biggest one yet. And then everyone would go their separate ways. But this wasn't some spur-of-the-moment idea. George had actually been planning this heist for the last three years. And the target was the Manhattan Savings Institute. George went with his normal routine. He deposited money, he became friends with the bank president, he got a crew member a job there as a bank guard, and he mapped out every inch of the bank. He built a replica in a warehouse, he had the exact vault, and they ran through scenarios time and time again, practicing cracking the vault, getting in and out of the institute. George knew something was off though. He knew something was coming, something bad, and on May 10th, 1878, he told his wife that someone may try and kill him, and that it may be one of his associates. He gave her a bunch of cash in case anything happened, and just a couple of weeks later, George disappeared. On June 4th, 1878, George's body was found along the Hudson River. He'd already been dead for some time, as the body was in stages of decomposing. George had been shot three times in the head. There was also a silver revolver found near his body. Everyone believed that Tom Draper was the one that killed him. However, George's murder would never be solved. His funeral was a bizarre one, for sure. There were cops, politicians, bankers, which was fitting, and higher-ups in the criminal world. Just a few months later, in October of 1878, George's crew used his plan to pull off the heist that George had only dreamed of. They used the plans to perfection as they broke into the Manhattan Savings Institute at night. They walked out with $2,000,000 in 
$747,700. Today, that would be the equivalent of $81 million. Newspapers reported that it was the most sensational bank robbery in the history of bank robberies. And it's a robbery that still stands today as the largest bank robbery in U.S. history. When adjusted for inflation, the next closest is from 1972, which when adjusted for inflation, that one is still $20 million less than the Manhattan Savings Institution. After the last robbery, 10 members of the crew scattered across the country. They were eventually all arrested and stood trial in NYC. Out of the 10, two were convicted. Those two were Jimmy Hope and his son, John. Both claimed that they were not a part of the robbery and were wrongfully convicted. From 1869 to 1878, it was estimated that George had a hand in 80% of all bank robberies in the entire United States. It's including the ones that he consulted on. The vast majority of the robberies were a lot smaller numbers that they were getting away with. But altogether, George made what would be an estimated of $200 million today. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion on this episode. If you can, please leave a rating, review. Even if you hate the show, I can live with that. And you can follow Crime Nerds Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Stay around for a few minutes after the outro music, and have a great day. Fittingly, today's tea brief is also about a bank robbery. This one just isn't going to be nicknamed the greatest bank robber anytime soon. Fountain Valley, California is a smaller suburban city just outside Los Angeles. Their city motto is, a nice place to live. In October of 2021, a man tried to take advantage of just how nice of a place it was. On October 4th, a Chase bank teller was handed a note by a customer demanding money. The bank teller complied, provided the money, and as soon as the suspect fled, the police were alerted. It wasn't made public at the time how much money that he got away with, just that it was a large sum of money. Now, the saying goes that a criminal will always return to the scene of the crime. Well, this man did that, just did it in the wrong way. The following day, the very next day, just before noon, the man arrived at this same Chase Bank and attempted to rob it again. This time, every employee was on high alert for him. The police were alerted and arrived to arrest 33-year-old Samuel Brown before he could leave. Per Insider.com, Samuel did have a history of robbery out of San Diego. This is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. Thank you for listening.